This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays, and I am thrilled to be joined today by my good friend, Bill Barnwell. Bill, how are you doing, buddy? Bill Barnwell of ESPN. Sorry, I just assume people know. <laughs> I appreciate that you've been doing podcasts with me for, what, a decade now? Close to a decade now? I th- it's close to that, And yeah. you still can't come up with a new intro besides the exact cadence and the exact like five-word intro you do for every podcast. So the way that I've described it as I was talking to the producers before we started developing the show was that it's like Zoolander not being able to turn left. <laughs> I, just, I can only do it one way. There's I, Every other time I consider a different way to do it, I just start tripping all over myself. I'm not a versatile podcast introducer. It's just not something I have in my toolbox. Maybe one day we can hope that you find another way to get into talking about football uh, division by division. It's a very difficult task, so I understand why it'd be, be tough for you. I, I don't. I think that that has passed. I think if it was going to happen, it already would have happened. As Bill alluded to, we have done this together You know, at old stops. We did the Grantland NFL podcast together for years. Uh, Bill is still at ESPN. Uh, He is one of my favorite people to talk about football with. He is a must read constantly on the NFL. I have no idea how he has the bandwidth to write and podcast as much as he does about the league, but he is constantly churning out great information. And I could not think of a better person to include in these division previews than him. We are doing the AFC East today, and there is no shortage of topics to talk about. We're going to start today, Bill, with the New England Patriots because even if they are not the favorite in some people's minds to win this division, I do think that they are the team we have to start with just when you consider the history. They've dominated this division for as long as I've been watching the NFL, it seems. But obviously, it's a different year. It's a different animal. No Tom Brady. Cam Newton comes in. A ton of turnover outside of the Tom Brady situation. So there's a lot of stuff to get to. This team is going to look a lot different than it did last year. So I think the number one question off the top here, it seems like Cam Newton is going to win this quarterback battle as most sentient beings thought he would after the Patriots signed him this spring. What do you think this offense will look like under Cam Newton if they're just kind of building it from scratch? Okay, so I think it's it's not as much as it is about the personnel usage or the scheme. Like, I don't think they're going to run the single wing. You know, with Cam as quarterback, I wouldn't put it past them. They might run it for a play or two, like you may see some <laughs> concepts. But I think, sort of, the thing I keep coming back to with Cam is that he's a replacement not just for Tom Brady, but also for Rob Gronkowski. And that sounds weird. He's not going to play tight end, but I'm going to explain okay. why that is the case. So in years past, one of the things the Patriots did really, really well was that they would take advantage of whatever they sent out or whatever the opposing team sent out in terms of their defensive personnel grouping. So the Patriots would dictate that with their own personnel groupings. They would come out with three, four wide, spread you out, and they could run the football very effectively because they had a good offensive line and they had Gronk. And when they came out, this is how they they won a Super Bowl against the Rams by running, you know, this sort of concept three times in a row. Um, They came out with... It's that empty package where they'd come out and essentially spread you out and kind of dictate one-on-one matchups, which works for them very very well and all. Right, and then the flip side of that is you come out with two running backs, you come out with a fullback and James Devlin in years past, you come out with two tight ends, and you throw the football. And they were able to do that effectively against the Rams in that game. And the reason they're able to do that so effectively was that they had Rob Gronkowski, who was a wide receiver and an offensive lineman in a tight end's body. Last year, no Gronk. You can't pull that off. Tom Brady's numbers dropped, and they were very, uh, they were, it was really easy to figure out what they were going to do. Last year, you look at the 
uh, next-gen stats. No fullback either, which was big. Yes, no fullback. James Duffin got hurt early in the year. But you look at the next-gen stats for them last year, uh, running backs with 200-plus snaps. When Sony Michelle was in the game, no running back was more of a run tell than Sony Michelle. So when he came out, 67% of the time they were running the football. That's the most of any running back in football. Uh, on the flip side, James White comes on the field. Only four running backs were more of a pass tell than James White. Almost 82% of the time when James White was on the field, they were throwing the football. And now, bringing this back to Cam, by bringing Cam into this offense, you have that sort of player who can really succeed in either of those situations. If the Patriots want to spread the field out, bring on three, four wide receivers, force the team to bring on five, six defensive backs, now you have Cam running against a light box, and he's someone who's going to overrun your opposing safety, your opposing linebacker. He is a difficult matchup in the run game. And then when the Patriots want to come out with, you know, two running backs and two tight ends and they want to, you know, feel they're going to run quarterback power or just run outside zone over and over again or just run some of their their core run concepts, they can flip it. And now Cam is a very effective play action passer. He was his uh, last year in Carolina and a guy who we know can throw the football effectively when he's healthy and be very well protected out of those personnel groupings by having those two running backs and two tight ends in the field. So I do think that, he sort of gives them that versatility schematically they didn't have without Rob Gronkowski. I think that makes sense. And he changes the numbers and that's what mobile quarterbacks do. Mm -hmm. They give you that advantage where you're dictating. Like you said, that's a good way to frame it. My question with that though, is how confident in we are Cam Newton's, how confident are we in Cam Newton's health where he's going to be able to run the ball often enough to be a factor and effective? Okay. Because I'm not sure that's just a given. No, it's not. But, but I think, there's two questions there. There is Cam healthy now, and will Cam be healthy at the end of the season? Right now, I believe Cam Newton is totally fine and can run the football effectively and is not in a position where he's likely to get hurt. He had um, the shoulder surgery before the 2019 season. I think he was recovered from that in training camp last year based on the reports at the time. And then he suffers the Liz Frank foot injury. That's a totally different injury. And he has, he's now a year removed from that. He should be recovered from that as well. Now, over the course of the entire 16-game season, is he likely to get hurt again? I, I think it'd be fair to suggest that is going to happen. I think you have to be selective in how you use him. Um, I don't think he's going to be sneaking on fourth and one maybe as much as he would have, you know, five or six years ago. But, um, you know, this is a guy who I think uh, the Patriots don't have to rely on him as a long-term option. They don't have to, you know, it, it, he has not to be the face of the franchise for the next five years. He's a free agent after the season. So it, it wouldn't shock me if the Patriots said, hey, we're going to use you in the most effective way we can. And if you do get hurt, well, that's a bummer. We have confidence in Jared Stidham. We can put him in, but we don't have to treat Cam like he's going to be, you know, the guy we need to rely upon for the next five, six years. I've always been impressed with the Patriots' ability to go with, not fight the tide. That they've never tried to make it harder on themselves. And they do everything they can to make the game easier on them and harder for opponents. And I think that Belichick sees what's going on. Mm -hmm. He understands that, the most difficult offenses to defend are the offenses where the quarterback is a threat. I mean, think about the last time they played Carolina and how much Cam just dominated. Mm -hmm. I, he sees that, and I think that if it's possible, that's the type of thing they're going to go with. You know, we saw when they, Jacoby Brissett came in for that game a couple years ago, they were willing to run the quarterback if they thought that that was beneficial for them. If that's on the table, I could see them doing it. I also think the passing game is more conducive to Cam's skill set mm -hmm. than it might appear on the surface. Because if you think about what they did in Carolina in 2018, it was a lot of short, quick passes. Mm -hmm. 
similar to what comprises the Patriots passing offense. So I could see that working. You know, you get the ball to James White in space. You have a lot of possession receivers, whether it's Muhammad Sanu, Julian Edelman. My central question for this offense is that I just don't understand where the explosive plays will come from. Even if we concede that they're going to be able to run the ball with Cam a little Mm -hmm. bit, the quick passing game works, I just don't know how they're going to be able to pick up chunks of yardage. Last year, I think Tom Brady had about 770 deep passing yards. Philip Dorsett accounted for a quarter of those. He is not on the team anymore, and they didn't really bring anybody in that's a clear replacement for him. So I'm just not sure how they're going to pick up chunks. Do you have any idea? Mm. Do you think they need to? Like, Can they get by without having that sort of guy who's going to make a, a ton of big plays downfield? I just think you have to be so consistently efficient if you don't have that those plays that get it for you all at once. And I'm just not sure that they're that type of offense. I think they can be okay, but I don't think they're going to be just picking up ch- first down after first down after first down. And the way that they're built, they're going to have to do that. I mean, 2016, their, their receiving grouping was this. Julian Edelman, who was faster then, but still not a speed demon. Martellus Bennett, Chris Hogan, James White, Gronk, Malcolm Mitchell, Danny Amendola, those are the guys who got more than 100 receiving yards. So, I mean, it's not like that's a a group of burners. I, I think you have guys who can make plays downfield. I think in Kill Harry, you're hoping is going to be that guy who, with his physicality, can make plays downfield. I think you're hoping that you can, you know, get the ball out to players who can make stuff happen after the catch in Edelman and Sanu. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think they have to have some threat of speed, but I don't think that has to be the primary focus of the offense or that, that guy has to be a primary piece of the receiving puzzle for them. But they don't even have one that's going to be a secondary piece. Who is it? Demir Bird? Just 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 the disdain. That was in your voice when you mentioned like, Demir Bird. Demir Bird has done just fine. He had that butt catch in Carolina where he had the two cheeks equals one knee. That That's fine. I, that's But that is his most notable play in the NFL. And apparently there hasn't been much of a connection with him and Cam on those deep balls in camp. Even if you go back to those, that 2016 team, Chris Hogan played a lot for them. And I know that's weird, but Chris Hogan played a lot for that team, and he was their kind of vertical threat. He averaged 18 yards a catch. Mm -hmm. There is not even a Chris Hogan on this team. Also, that year, Martellus Bennett had 55 catches, and there is not a Martellus Bennett clone on this team. I just don't think they have the types enough different types of receivers to consistently be a successful passing offense, even if Cam is right. Mm -hmm. How good do they have to be, though? So that's the question. And so if we look at the the offense— and one more thing before – I get where you're going with this, but I want to talk about one more thing very sure. quickly. If So just if we're considering the offense, and I, I know you were talking about the running game a decent amount there. It's like, all right, are they going to run the ball with Sonny Michelle or Damian Harris or whoever? Are you at all concerned about the running game and, by extension, the offensive line now that Dante Scarnecchia is gone and Marcus Cannon opted out? Do you think they're just going to be able to lean on that? I'm always concerned about Dante Scarnecchia leaving. I want him living in my apartment just in case I need to be called upon a play offensive line at some point in the NFL. He's that good. I don't care about the running back. It's not that important to me. As someone who was a Sony Michelle fantasy uh, supporter last year, I went through that. Man, I'm, I'm happy that I made it through um, an offseason that was very traumatic for me. Uh, I hope that they have options, but... It, it's not the running back isn't important. They could plug in the Garrett Blunt off the waiver wire and he could score 15 touchdowns. That's not out of the question. That's fine then. So how about the offensive line? That's the, because you have David, Dave, David Andrews coming yep. back after a year away. Mm-hmm. 
which is no guarantee. I mean, Travis Fendrick was in a different situation, mm-hmm. but I mean, we saw him take a drop off after missing an entire season. Sure. And then Jermaine Illuminer is at right tackle. Every time I say his name, I always say it in the Menomina. <laughs> I mean, Illuminer. It's, it's, I've done it all day. Illuminer. Is that the right way to I, say I, it? I've never heard of him before today. I have no idea. Okay, so he was a guy the Patriots traded for last offseason, right? I think in camp, they traded the fourth round pick to the Ravens for him and I think a sixth round selection. And he did. He was an interior guy, yeah, right? Yeah, he was a guard who didn't really play. Yeah. And then now, because they lost Marcus Cannon, they're obviously deep at guard um, with Shaq Mason uh, and, and, and Tooney. They're, they're they're totally fine at guard. So I. You assume Wynn will be better in year two after the, after the Achilles? I mean, I think it just has to be healthy, right? Wynn ha- hasn't really played yeah. that much over his first two seasons in the NFL. So, you know, I, I, I think. With a luminary, like, can he be a, a solid right tackle? I don't think we're going to know until we actually see. And we saw last year, this Patriots offense, once they lost win, did take a major step backwards. And that was with Skarnikia. Yeah. And now you don't have him. So, at, again, there's just so many moving pieces here. I have my concerns. So, back to your question. How good does the offense need to be? And the reason you're asking me that is you think the defense is going to be very good. Is that correct? I do think the defense is going to be very good. I do not think it's going to be as good as it was a year ago. I mean, it's almost impossible for it to be as good. So if we're just ta- – let's take normal regression into account, okay? Let's say they brought back all of the pieces they had last year. Let's just, you know, hypothetically. They still have Hightower. Kyle Van Noy is back. Deron Harmon is back. Chung doesn't opt out. I still think they would go from number one in defensive DVOA to probably just outside the top five. Well, now, yeah. when you consider all of the changes, it seems like an even bigger drop-off could happen. Of course. Well, the example to bring up here are, not to pick on a particular team, but the 2018-2019 Chicago Bears, who <laughs> I knew this is happening. the Bears picked off 4.4% of opposing passes in 2018. Best rate in football. 2019 Basically the same personnel. They did lose Adrian Amos. They did lose Bryce Callahan. But, you know, Fuller was there. Eddie Jackson was there. The guys who were the core parts of that defense, Khalil Mack was there. Akeem Hicks got hurt, but he was there for a chunk of the year. They fell to 1.8% last year, and they fell off accordingly. They were still a good defense, but they weren't as good as they were a year ago. Now the Patriots, 4.7% of opposing passes were picked off last year there's just no precedent for keeping that up in the modern league where interception rates are typically in the you know two percent range league-wide so uh, i think they're going to be good and i think that you know the getting so much of the secondary back besides chung is going to go a long way because they can still play a lot of in coverage they well, can what still do, what work do you together. mean what do you mean harman's gone too i'm not that they good. lost a lot of I'm they lost a lot Harman. of their safety i think okay so you- also also here's my other question for you getting to the safeties it might not be this year, but do you think we're going to look back in a couple of years and regret letting Bill Belichick get his hands on like a 98th percentile athlete in Cal Tucker? He was, I, I think he was hurt or dinged up a little bit at the beginning of camp and he's just gotten on the field recently. Apparently he's been great. I'm, he's, I'm so scared. He's just flying around. It's, it's almost terrifying, but here's okay. So I understand what you're saying and I, the corners are you have to concede it. They're excellent. Yeah. It's a deep group. They play. They are exceptional at playing man coverage. They're so, so good. I mean, even outside of Gilmore, that group is excellent. But when you have so many moving pieces at both safety and up front, mm-hmm. and your defensive success in a lot of ways is predicated on the versatility that you have in those two spots, 
I think you're going to take a huge step back. I don't think Kyle Van Noy and Jamie Collins are these excellent pass rushers by any stretch, but their versatility along with Hightower to do different things is really the identity of that team in the front seven. And now you just don't have that. I mean, if you're going to be relying on Joss Uche and Anthony Jennings and Chase Minovich to be a lot better, I mean, maybe that happens. Maybe there's a path to it. But I think that's a risky thing to be hoping for. I think they have to be more conventional up front. And I think that's a big concern is that they can really mix things up and really confuse people. If you want to see an NFL quarterback who has no idea what's happening in front of him. It's called the Sam Darnold Monday night game. Yeah, watch the Sam Darnold (laughs) Monday night game because I – I shouldn't feel pity for Sam Darnold. He's a very handsome, very successful NFL quarterback. I am a, a, a schmuck who lives in you know in an apartment in the D.C. area. <laughs> I should never feel pity for Sam Darnold. I felt total pity for Sam Darnold watching that game. I think they have to be more conventional. They don't have the linebackers. They don't have the communication. They don't have the experience. They don't have the you know play recognition ability those guys had. But I still think they can be good because the secondary is still going to be really sound. And, and I... I you know, I, I do think that we have the greatest defensive mind in the history of the National Football League coaching these guys up. I think there's going to be some growing pains early in the year, but I do think by November, they're going to be fine. They're going to be really good over the second half of the season. Two things about that. One, the gra- I, I, I love Bill Belichick. This is a pro Bill Belichick podcast as we get started here. Two years ago, the Patriots finished 31st in defensive DVOA. It's, it's not as if we have this huge like track record of top 10 finishes consistently no matter what and no matter who's on the field. I mean, these defenses at times in New England have been objectively bad, even if they've been good in the red zone and they've managed to not give up that many points. Between the 20s, we've had bad defenses for the Patriots in the past 10 years. So it's not this thing that you just have to pencil in. I, it's not a given. Two, what was the other thing I was going to say? What else did you say? You're criticizing Bill Belichick for having one thirty-first place defensive DVOA finish in 2017, and you can't even count to two when it comes to a list of things. <laughs> okay, it, it's that's my thing. It, all right, and let's say here's the other thing I was going to say. I remember. All right, even if they're good, yeah, where do you think this team finishes in defense? If you had to kind of put a number on it, just best guess. I I, I think your instinct is right. I'd probably say in the six seven range. Okay, let's say they finish seventh in defensive DVOA. And the offense is about what we think it is. Is this a playoff team? Yeah. There's there's seven playoff berths. And I, I don't know if you you prepared for the rest of this podcast maze, but I did not. Two of the team I I have I have faith you prepared. Two of the teams in this division are not very good. Like <laughs> like I, I you can't say you can't pencil them in for four wins because we saw what happened in week seventeen last year, but the Dolphins might be fun. We'll get to the Dolphins in a minute here on, <laughs> on this podcast. But, I mean, the offense was 11th in DVOA last year. And I, I think they could be in that same place again this year with Cam. I think there's maybe some upside to even improve a tiny bit, given the injuries. But I, I think overall, this is going to be uh, a, a team that is in the 9-7, and 10-6 and six range. And I think that should, at the very yeah, least, right. be enough for, you know, if not the AFC East title, which we'll get to, but um, one of those wildcard berths. I think solid but unspectacular is how I would describe them. That's what I'm expecting from them this year, both on offense and defense. I think the defensive ceiling is higher just because of the talent in the secondary. I think the offense will be fine with the pieces they have, but I don't think they're going to scare anybody. Um, 
uh, you know, they have a guy who was MVP once a few years ago. Like, they, I'm not I saying understand that, I'm not but... saying that's the most likely outcome, but I think they have that that season in them if we get the Cam who was an MVP candidate, not just in 2015, but also in the first half of 2018 as well. So even if, but let's look at the 2018 thing because people have made that comparison a lot, and I understand it. And with the short passes, everything else. But if you look at the group of receivers he was throwing to in Carolina, whether it's Christian McCaffrey, DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, all those guys, those guys have juice after the catch. He doesn't have anybody like that now. Even the guy, the guys on the Patriots are both. They're not vertical threats, and they're not yards after catch threats. That's the problem: is that you can't just dump it to these guys and have explosive plays just kind of manifest because they can make things happen in space. They don't have those sorts of players. Two things. One, I think Mohamed Sanu, when he's not playing through a high ankle sprain, and James White are guys who can make plays after the catch. I think James White is. I do not think Mohamed Sanu is at this point in his career. How old is Mohamed Sanu? He's not that old. He's like 30. Listen to two people typing. He's 31. Okay, he's he's 31 and nine days as we record this. He turned 31 nine days ago. He's about two. He's almost exactly two years younger than me. And I can tell you this right now. I am definitely not making things happen after the catch. So he's not far behind. I I have faith that if you were called into action for the Patriots, you could average eight and a half yards per reception. <laughs> I really appreciate that, but I disagree. But thank you. All right. So one of the reasons that them being pretty good but not great matters this year in a way it might not have mattered in years past sure. in the NFC East sure. is that. There are people, I doubt you're one of those people, who thinks the Buffalo Bills are going to be pretty damn good this year. So before we get into kind of their outlook, I want to talk about just the way that this team has been put together. Outside of quarterback, which it doesn't matter, but and we'll get to that. But the other 21 guys, and even beyond that, the depth on this team, I absolutely love the way this team has been assembled. If you think about the way they've used their free agent money trying to plug up a lot of holes with smaller deals, dice rolls, especially at specific position groups. On the offensive line, last year there were a lot of just low-risk free agent signings to plug spots, whether Mm -hmm. that's John Feliciano or um, Quentin Spain fits that bill. This year I think Darrell Williams is in that same spot where they signed him for depth. He wasn't a great starter in Carolina, but if he's your backup right guard or tackle, you're doing okay. Defensive line, same way. They went out and got Quentin Jefferson this year, Mario Addison – Addison's contract is sizable, but they're just, they love depth. They love being able to have a lot of bodies in those spots. I think the secondary has been built great. I just love the team building approach from this team. Okay. Problem was. Here's here's my question. I have two questions for you, actually. Number one, where do you think this roster ranks among teams in the NFL if we remove quarterback from the situation? It's been the top five. I, I would say maybe number two behind the Saints. And I think it's I think I, the Saints are number one with a bullet. Yes. Yeah. Um I yeah, I, I'd I'd probably say that. Yeah. I'd say I'd say two. Second question, and I know you are a huge fan of scenarios where a team who drafted somebody and then had a player later in that draft play better than the player they drafted. I want to ask you this question as an enthusiast based on those typical range of questions. Would the Bills be the favorites to win the Super Bowl in 2020 if they had Lamar Jackson as their starting quarterback? 100%. More, you, you, would, you would put them ahead of the Chiefs? Yes. Okay, I mean, I, I, that, that's, not, I think that's, so. not in, that's not indefensible at all. I'm no, just no, 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 it's not a crazy... It, I, I, it, it's a reasonable question, but no, I think that I would have... I, yes, I would say that. So, 
As you may know, uh, athletic listeners, Lamar Jackson is not the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Josh, you don't say. Josh Allen is the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. And I guess this leads us to our first topic of discussion when it comes to the Bills. What on earth can you realistically expect from Josh Allen in 2020? What's on the table here? So I went back and I watched the wild card game again this morning mm-hmm. just because I was curious. I, want, I wanted some fresh Josh Allen in my mind before we had this conversation. And it, as you might expect with Josh Allen, mixed bag. <laughs> A lot of different things happening. There, I for, totally forgot about that should be pick six from Courtney Roby in the first quarter. Right at that the was beginning dropped. of the game. Right at the beginning of the game. That different game if that happens. But there's also a couple plays from that game where he doesn't he doesn't get any help and mm-hmm. he got unlucky. Yep. There was that throw to John Brown on the right sideline where he didn't tap his feet in. Mm-hmm. There was the dime he threw to Duke Williams that was dropped for a touchdown. There, I can understand, and this is Bills fans are in a place that's familiar to me as a Bears fan <laughs> who had to talk myself into Mitchell Trubisky with an otherwise decent roster. You can talk yourself into this. I, he absolutely has his faults. But he made strides as an intermediate passer last year. There's no denying that. I mean, I think he was 10th in DVOA on intermediate passes over the middle of the field where he was awful the year Mm -hmm. before. He was 10th in passing. The Bills were 10th in passing DVOA from weeks 10 to 17 last year. Mm -hmm. You absolutely can say, all right, I can understand how they're moving forward. The number one thing here is what happened on deep passes last year. He was 18 of 74 on passes of 20 plus air yards last year. I don't know if you know this. I know you're not a numbers guy, but that's not very good. No. No, it's not good, Maze. I I went back and I watched uh I think six Josh Allen games throughout the year. I wrote a piece on him for ESPN just updating on on kind of what to expect, what I saw from him. And there's definitely progress that's been made. I mean, he is a guy who you know, I he came into the league as someone who you know, was pretty scattershot. He was not comfortable in the pocket in his first season. He got more comfortable there in year two. And I think in contrast to someone like, say, a Mitchell Trubisky, his decision-making is pretty good. Like, he doesn't really put the ball in in scary places. It happens occasionally. The, the Patriots game, the first Patriots game, is a good example. But especially during that run after the Patriots game, he was effective at putting the ball in safe places. I think the big concern for him is a couple things. I think his footwork is very inconsistent. So yes. you'll literally see plays where he's like battling his feet to stay in the right place. And it's, you know, it, it's almost endearing in a way. It's like a, um, <laughs> you know, like like a baby deer, I guess, trying to, <laughs> to walk on ice. But, but I mean, when he gets it right, the ball is accurate. The ball is where it needs to be it just doesn't happen all that frequently or, or it happens on an inconsistent basis. And I, you don't know what's going to happen from play to play. And then I think on top of that, he is a guy who really struggles with throwing something before it's open. He really typically yeah. has to see the play come open before he throws the ball. Now, if you're throwing like a back shoulder throw, for example, which is something he does a fair amount, he's willing to put that up because it's a pretty safe throw, but like going over the middle of the field, man, he does not want to put the ball in a place until he actually sees you know, Cole Beasley or John Brown or Stefan Diggs, uh, the new addition they made, come open. So I think, you know, the, the tough part for me is if he adds that, he could be really good. But I don't know if that's a skill you can add at the professional level or if he's going to have the time to develop that at the NFL level. It, it's just a, you know, it's one of those things where it's hard to say whether it's innate, whether it's something you have to develop, you know, at previous levels before you get to the NFL or whether you can pull it off by getting a thousand or 1500 or 2000 pass attempts at the pro level. 
there's a lot a lot of what you just said I think is really relevant. I want to talk about the the accuracy and the and the touch he has on balls because yep. I think that's his biggest issue. Is he he when you look at Tom Brady, I, I've compared him to a golfer before, mm-hmm. where golfers can kind of shape their shots. You know, they can understand. I know how to push the ball this way. I know how to put more loft under it. I know this, and he doesn't have that. He has a very bad feel for how to shape his throws to various levels of the field. The particular throw I'm thinking about, there was one in that Texans game where he had John Brown on a post, mm-hmm. and he put it on. It was a level one throw that he needed to put more air under, and that got broken up. Yep. He does that all the time. So that's a huge issue. I think with the not putting the ball in harm's way, that's not an accident. He has, no, I, I think, a weak. That he has a weekly conversation with Sean McDermott. They, I mean, it's just one of those head coach quarterback sit downs. I did a story on Josh Allen last year, and we talked about this. And the number one edict from a defensive minded head coach shouldn't be surprising is do not throw the ball to the other team. Mm-hmm. And I think on his deep throws last year, and on a lot of throws last year, that voice is in his head as he's making decisions. Yeah. And I do think that contributes to some of those overthrows because he'd rather throw it five yards over somebody then put it in harm's way. I'm not trying to explain away the issues, but I do think that that's part of the way he plays the game. I agree, but there are definitely throws. There was a John Brown throw early in the season that was almost comical against the Giants. There are throws... I, I remember the throw you talking about. ...where somebody is, <laughs> is wide open and about to hit their head uh, on the uprights, and he still overthrows them by five yards. So I do think he is conscious of that, but I don't know if he can actually turn it on and off and say, okay, I'm going to make those 50-50 throws. Now, of yep. course... If you're going to make those 50-50 throws and put the ball up in a dangerous place, you'd want to have someone like Stephon Diggs there to catch the football. So I think that's the biggest thing, is that if his number one issue is deep ball accuracy, which it clearly was last season, I would contend that they traded for the best guy in the league to correct that problem. Mm-hmm. I talked to a coach, a guy who coached Stephon Diggs for a couple of years this spring for a story that I was working on. And he told me that Diggs was the best deep ball tracker that he's ever seen in like a decade and a half coaching in the league. And if you watch the tape, that shines through. It's We talk all the time about big targets and how that's good for an inaccurate quarterback. But what's the difference in terms of catch radius for a six-foot guy and a six-five guy? Mm-hmm. It's what, a couple, like six inches, ten inches? With Diggs, if he's going to track a ball down five yards off target, it doesn't matter that he's six feet tall. Mm-hmm. So I really do think they went out and got the best guy to f- prove once and for all and to find out if Josh Allen is the quarterback. And I think that Brandon Bean should be commended for that. Yeah, sure. I, I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty upset with the Bills uh, organization right now after that stuff about them uh, complaining about people, you know, tweeting and stuff during practice. Yeah, it's been a bad look for them for the past like two weeks. It's not They're not doing good things. They're, they're not the only ones, to be fair. And I think... You know, in reality, if I'm being fair, they are doing a great job in terms of building this roster. And I think it was the right risk to take. I think there are people who, of course, are going to see the Stefan Diggs edition and say, oh, what happens in week six when he gets pissed? Like, it, it's better to have that happen and still take a risk on a guy who can transform your offense as opposed to sort of just trying to get by with guys who are nice. I mean, John Brown was awesome last year. John Brown was a legitimate was number really one good. wide receiver last year. And the idea of having him as your second best wideout is scary. That could be a really, really impressive group of pass catchers. I think Dawson Knox has the right to improve after impressing as a rookie. A lot of drops from Dawson he Knox. He was good, yeah. Some big plays from him last year, too. Um, this could be a really effective passing game. And I think, honestly, I'm less concerned about, uh, about, about Stefan Diggs' fit. 
I'm more worried about the line right now, and especially the right side of the offensive line. Because last year, John Feliciano, uh, you know, I thought of him as a guy uh, elsewhere. He was really good last year. I was really impressed with how he played last year. Super solid pro. Right. But, like, like that kind of, you know, it it sort of undersells. I I think he was a, not a Pro Bowl caliber guard, but kind of right in that tier below last year. Cody Ford was, you know, a rookie. He was a rookie right tackle. He struggled. He was not always playing. 100% 100% of the time, they rotated him with Ty Secchi when Secchi was healthy. Um, he was overmatched against better pass rushers. And I think now that Feliciano's done for the year, there are concerns about what do you do with Cody Ford? Do you give up on that process and move him inside and then start, uh, you know, you could start Daryl Williams at right tackle. You could start Secchi at right tackle. You could start Brian Winters, who I think was a great move they brought in to bring in you know, the former Jets starter. Uh, at so on brand. It's they the exact have, right. type of signing they would make. Right. They have depth for sure. And I think that's great. But I don't know if they have two above average starters on that side of the line. We have to wait and see. And I think for a guy who we know with Josh Allen, like when the situation is right, when his team is leading, when he doesn't have to press the football, he is pretty good. But when there's pressure on him to succeed, when he is not getting the pass protection he needs, when there's free rushers coming on him, he panics, and we saw in the second half of that Texans game with a J.J. Watt on the field uh, tormenting, honestly, Cody Ford a fair amount at the time in a situation where his team needed big plays, where they needed you know a drive here there to catch up. Josh Allen played like the guy who was a meme. I mean, he he was you know doing all the stuff you remember from that game. So I think you know <laughs> so much of what happens with this offense, so much of what happens with this team from week to week is going to depend on keeping Josh Allen in positive game scripts and keeping him in situations where he doesn't have to be the guy making plays 30 yards downfield to get his team back in the game. I think they're going to find a suitable five. I agree. My understanding right now is that I think Ford is going to end up playing inside. Winters is going to be depth and they're going to figure it out with Secchi and uh, Darrell Williams at right tackle. And I think that's okay. I mean, if you're if that's your situation and yes. that's you're oh, kind for of sure. scrambling for and sure. that's the solution compared to a lot of NFL teams, you're doing pretty damn good. I agree. So I think I think the line's going to be okay. I love the running back situation. I just think that with Singletary and Zach Moss, they have two really good tackle breakers. They're going to have some people that make things happen even when it's not there. I beyond just the talent that they have on, in the receiving core. I just think that if you're trying to build one, the pieces fit extremely well together mm-hmm. because Brown can be your field stretcher. Beasley is, I mean, the quintessential slot option. And even though Diggs is a really good deep receiver, he's also great in space. He's a fantastic route runner. So you got some pieces that are malleable. You can move them around. I really like what they could be on offense if Allen is acceptable. And I legitimately think he can be. That would be the point that you should start recording Robert May's audio uh, quotes for future usage here on the Athletic Football Show. I, I mean, I, I could buy, I could see him being a better quarterback than he was a year ago, and I could still see him being a below-average NFL passer in the process. Yeah, that's fine. I can agree with you. The one thing I'll say before we get to the defense here is that I think people have compared their situation to what the Bears were, the situation the Bears were in with Trubisky and what the Jaguars were in with Bortles. Sure. And I think there's one. I think there's one key difference here. The Bills have not leveraged their future before they figured out if Josh Allen was good or not. The Stephon Diggs trade is a bold move, undeniable, Mm -hmm. but they traded a first-round pick for him, and they didn't have to give him a new contract extension. His deal is actually very reasonable. They haven't traded away a bunch of draft capital. They haven't signed a bunch of huge free agents the way that the Jaguars did. So even if Allen fizzles out, 
they're in a really good position to just plug in a new quarterback because they're going to have the resources to do it. That's why I think this is different. I think they've been much more patient mm-hmm. and judicious with the way they've built this roster and it's set them up for success. You're no 100% matter what happens right. with the quarterback. You're absolutely right. But let me ask you this question. Then we can move on to the defense. Mitch Trubisky last year uh, was coming into the season as a hot MVP candidate. If I had said the Bears were going to bench, according to who I know he was, but that's ridiculous. He, I mean, he was. He the was, whole thing was a farce. But but you go but you go ahead. I'm getting it. He would. Th- there was no there was no doubt that Mitchell Trubisky was going to be the Bears' quarterback at least for a couple more years. You know, like it was not like he might not be the guy, but he's going to get plenty of time to prove it after what we saw from him in 2018. And then he had a, has a bad year in 2019, and the Bears have done what they've done. Do you think the Bills would make a similar sort of? move during the offseason in 2021 if Josh Allen does struggle the way Mitch struggled uh in 2020 no you think they're gonna stay I don't think they're gonna be as desperate that's even if he's not good this year I can't see them making that sort of move I think that he is the unquestioned starter next year but it's hard to say that now I mean who knows what's gonna happen during the season but I don't think the outcome can be bad enough for them to say we need competition here next year that would be surprising to me Again, please, please quote that and save that for future reference. I know, it's going to sound terrible. So I, I let's get to the defense, and I think this is an important point because yeah. with the Bears last year, it, it was just up in big blinking lights. Regression, mm-hmm. regression, regression. It, it, it was always going to happen. Just the number of turnovers, everything else. The Bills' defense is different than that, and I think that that's an important distinction to make. This is a team that didn't really – survive on turnovers last year they survived on limiting big plays they gave up the fewest explosive plays in the nfl on deep passes last year of any defense this is just an extremely deep solid sound well-coached group and they bring everybody back that's important so i have i'm really confident in their ability to be a top five defense again. And that's not something you typically say about a defense. I I usually have a much more skeptical eye when I'm projecting defenses moving forward. But I just think this group is going to be really good again because they have the hallmarks of a defense that's really good every year. Well, can I give you a reason to be skeptical? Sure. You always do. Well, this defense last year ranked third in defensive adjusted games lost. So... For the uninitiated. Health is the one thing. Yeah, you're right. This is a stat of football outsiders that measures how healthy a team was by uh, tracking games lost, tracking how players were appearing on the injury report, and adjusts for whether a guy was a starter, whether he was a reserve, blah, 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 blah. It's it's a stat I helped develop, so I'm a little biased towards it, but it is helpful. (laughs) Um, And the Bills were the third healthiest defense in the league in 2019, according to the Football Outsiders Almanac. They were the sixth healthiest in 2018 according to the Football Outsiders Almanac. They've already lost Starlo to Lele to an opt-out. He is not a a superstar, but he is a valuable player and a valuable run-plugging defensive tackle. Josh Norman, who they imported this year to compete at cornerback with Levi Wallace, is already dealing with a hamstring injury. This is a defense that has been very good the last two years and deserves and is deep and has a ton of talent. And it's not, you know, they're not one piece away from being a disaster by any means, but they have not been tested in terms of injuries the past couple of years for extended periods of time, and I would be concerned that that may be the case in 2020, not because they would do, but just because, you know, the reality is you can't count on any defense to be healthy like that from year to year. The Rams offense is a good example of how projecting injury rates based on what happened in the past is not a great idea based on what happened to them between 2017 and 2018, and then when they got they had to deal with many more injuries in 2019. So I 
you know, I, I, I'm not saying they're going to just fall apart. Obviously, I hope it doesn't happen. I think there's a ton of depth here. I think they could survive losing Lotto Lele or losing Norman. But they do have a, a group of, you know, genuine superstar talent players at linebacker and in the secondary where there would be a significant drop-off if they lost any one of those guys for a significant period of time. Yeah, but even the two guys you mentioned, I'm looking at the depth chart without them, and it doesn't even matter. Like, they don't need Josh Norman to play. I mean, Teron Johnson's going to be their nickel. Levi Wallace has the second cornerback spot locked up the same way he did last year. I look, I, you look I, at the I don't agree line. with you. I don't agree with you. They, they brought in Norman to push Levi Wallace last year or this year. But if the, he's the starter, I think they're going to be fine. It's not as if they were counting on Josh Norman. And the same goes for Starla Tuile. I don't even think he's one of their best three defensive tackles. I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's fine. We are, we can certainly agree to disagree. And I think that, again, like it's not losing those two guys necessarily, but it's an example of, oh, you can't count on everyone to stay healthy. And if, if you it do starts lose, to pile up, if you lose an Edmonds or you lose yeah. a Milano, they lose Milano for a stretch, but if you lose Milano for a chunk of the year, or Edmonds for a chunk of the year, or but you they lose- have AJ Klein now too. They, that's what I'm saying. They have so much depth. Yep. I, I understand to deal with this. AJ Klein. It's not Tremaine Edmonds um, no. in terms of linebackers. I know we, we've they paid them like it though. They're, I mean, they're a team that, you know, they value depth and they value paying guys, uh, you know, who can play, uh, 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 you know, in that on that second or third team. And I do think that look up and down the deals they gave. Like, I think they probably gave, um, you know, someone like a Vernon Butler or a um, or maybe even Addison, who I love. Maybe they gave those guys too much, but I think they're willing to sacrifice and pay those guys because they're not paying a lot of their young players very much right now. Yeah, they have my understanding of their team building philosophy in general is that they like to plug holes in free agency with kind of more modest contracts so it frees up their draft picks to truly pick the best players available mm-hmm. or to let's say trade one for Stefan Diggs which as a general rule if you can pull it off is how you should build the team but a lot of teams don't have discipline to build that way also one more thing about the bills I want to mention just just you know again not anything related to a team you're a fan of but rookie sixth round kicker here in Tyler Bass in Buffalo that would concern me at least a tiny bit I'm so glad we couldn't leave this podcast without you mentioning kickers or special teams. I should have known it was coming. It doesn't matter. When do kickers ever impact football games? I know. I just never think about it, and I probably should. One more thing before we move on. I just Quick Trey White appreciation hour. I think that if they're really good this year, this could be the type of season where he is like a defensive player of the year candidate and potentially wins. I mean, he is he is closer to being the best cornerback in football than he is to being the third best cornerback in football. And I don't think people give him that sort of credit. I love watching him play. The defense that they play with that heavy amount of quarters where he can just kind of be really physical and play his corner of the field, really get up in people's faces, even though he's a little bit undersized. He's just such a fun player. He's really, really good. And they have the defensive staff that's truly unlocked him. I mean, when you watch this team play, they're just so well coached. I mean, all the credit to what Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott have done for the last couple of years. It's truly impressive. Yeah, I mean, if you watch that Ravens game, I think they were the best team in the league in terms of slowing down the Ravens' mm-hmm. uh, rushing attack. Even even better than Tennessee was in, in the playoff game. And, you know, some of that is talent. They have some super talented players, but, like, Matt Milano was a fifth-round pick. I mean, there's so many guys on this roster who, you know, have played elsewhere, whether it's the safeties, whether it's the guys up front. So many guys who played elsewhere and you know, might have been good there who became great in Buffalo and so many guys who were ordinary elsewhere who became good rotation players in Buffalo. And that's a credit to that coaching staff. 
it's a hallmark of a really good team. And I think the safeties are the two p- people who are emblematic of it. Yeah, Just sure. two guys who are incredibly smart. I mean, Hyatt is a crazy athlete, but those guys are always in the right place. They always have a great sense of what teams are telling them formationally, tendencies. I mean, you can just see how fast and disciplined they played. It's rare. And that's why I think that even if they're a little less healthy, whatever, they're still going to be one of the best defenses in mm-hmm. the league. For sure. All right. Let's get to the rest of the AFC East. So I think with the with the Patriots and the Bills, it's worth talking about their playoff chances, you know, mm-hmm. individuals, position groups, everything, because we need to nitpick on teams that are potential playoff contenders. With the Jets and the Dolphins, I want to have more theoretical conversations. So I want to propose this to you. Okay. Let's say you are a an assistant in the Jets personnel department. You work under Joe Douglas. It doesn't matter if the team goes 4-12 and 12 this year. Both your bosses and your jobs are probably safe. If you were building a case for what a positive season for the Jets would be, where you would define success, what would that look like for you? I love this question, Mays, because I have a hypothetical for you regarding the Jets. And I think, oh, no. I think we're in a very similar space. So my hypothetical, I'll just answer it basically with this. My hypothetical for you is this. Let's say a genie comes down. He is wearing green. He's uh, dressed like Fireman Ed. And he says, Mace, you're now a Jets fan, and you can pick one of these two scenarios. Would you prefer a a 9-7 and season where Sam Darnold gets hurt or is inconsistent? Basically just plays the way he did in 2019, which, hey, 9-7 and probably gets you into the playoffs, given that, again, we're looking at a 17 playoff in the AFC. Or a 6-10 and 10 season where Sam Darnold is healthy and is 10% better than league average by any you know quarterback stat we can come up with. He, is, he plays an above-average season at quarterback. I think I would choose the latter, but I'm willing to hear arguments for both sides. I would absolutely choose the latter because I think that's all that matters this year. Right. When you consider the the turnover and now we have like it's the uh, we have Joe Douglas's guys like th- this is the first time where it's like he had the draft capital. He's been able to shape the roster, bring in certain types of people. I think if you look at their plan, it resembles what the Bills did last offseason to a certain degree. When you think about retooling the offensive line almost from scratch, you have one big signing, one draft pick a couple cheaper contracts just to fill some spots because they need to be a lot better there. So that's what they've done. I mean, there's a ton of turnover here, especially on the offensive side of the ball. So I don't think you need to be very good. You just need signs that you're headed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And there's no more important sign than with your quarterback. Absolutely. And I think that even if the the Jets do piece together like a 95th percentile season in terms of luck, in terms of health, you know, let's say the Patriots take a step backwards, the Josh Allen implodes, you know, Cam gets hurt, you know, let's say the Jets do win the division somehow. If Sam Darnold's not proving anything, if he's just going to be an ordinary quarterback, you're in the same situation you were a year ago. You just happened to get one extra playoff game out of the package. And I think, you know, it's not out of the question that the Jets would say after three years, hey, we're good. We're going to move on from Sam Darnold. I mean, the guys who drafted him are no longer in the organization. He has been pretty mediocre when he's played. And of course, the injuries are a concern. I think it's very fair to say he hasn't had the pieces around him. But the reality is you're three years in after this season and you're deciding on a fifth year option. You're getting to the point where you're going to start having to consider seriously paying him. You know, if there's a guy you love in the draft that you think you can get with, you know, the fifth overall pick and you're drafting in that spot, It's not out of the question. I think the Jets could move on from Sam Darnold after this season. So I think you want to get intel into whether 
you can make that choice and feel good about it this year. And that is the most important thing for your franchise, if not in 2020, over the next five or six years. Here's my problem, though. I have a lot of doubts about whether they've set themselves up to answer that question. I think just by virtue they're of the better, around him. They're better, but they are not where they need to be, for sure. I mean, the receiving core is a nightmare, man. I mean, we're, we're looking at a situation where Brashad Perriman and Chris Hogan are going to be the two starters okay, with Jameson so Crowder. I, I, I had the under uh, one and a half for Chris Hogan mentions during this podcast, so I just lost a lot of money. First off, when I woke up this morning, I did not expect to mention Chris Hogan on this podcast once, let alone twice. Also, by the way, you could tell me Chris Hogan's age is anything from 26 to 34, and I would believe you. <laughs> what is it, actually? He's probably in the middle. Is he he's, older than Mohamed Sanu? He's 31. He's he's older than he's <laughs> he is in fact almost a full year older than Mohamed Sanu. And I think Jameson oh, Crowder God. is going to be the focal point of this receiving attack. And I think also we're let's kinda, think about what you just said. I know. Let, I know. Let's, let's I know. examine that sentence. I know. I know. I'm not. I'm not thrilled about it either, Mace. I'm not trying to to prop it up as positive, but I think a lot depends on what Chris Herndon does this year. I mean, this is a guy who. Yeah. The, the, the raw numbers are not that great as a rookie, but on a per-target basis, very impressive. We know rookie tight ends typically don't have great seasons, and he was pretty good as a rookie and then missed all of last year. And I think it's, you know, you can't count on him making the leap, but there is a universe where he does make the leap and he is a 1,000-yard receiver, and that would be so valuable for Sam Darnold. In the same way that, you know, he's not going to be George Kittle, obviously, but I think George Kittle coming out of nowhere to take that leap for the Niners and turning into a superstar from being a fifth round pick meant so much to that organization and so much to, you know, their developmental process as they rebuilt that offense around Jimmy Garoppolo. I think it's one of those things where even outside of Darnold, you're really just spending this year trying to uh, collect pieces for the future, identify who's going to be a building block, who's not going to be, you know, I think bless Austin, who they took in the sixth round last year is in line to possibly fight for one of the starting cornerback spots. Maybe you get a hit there. Let's see what Marcus May is now that they're going to really unleash him kind of in that Jamal Adams role. You know, on the offensive side, is Denzel Mims, when he gets back and gets on the field, does he flash a little bit? Is Mekhi Becton really good from day one? That's where they are to me. It's, we're building for the future. This is a kind of a holding pattern season as we assemble the roster, evaluate the roster, everything else. Okay, you just said all that, though? And I'm pretty sure Frank Gore is going to get 100 carries for this football team. That would be the most Adam Gase thing that has ever existed. It, we are in full-scale evaluation mode, and we're going to have the 39-year-old running back carry the ball 250 times. Ahead of the guy who we paid, what, $14 million a year to sign in free agency? I don't think the Adam Gase era is going well. That, mm. That's going to be my takeaway from this. I, I mean, like... You asked me the question about the Jets on the whole to start. What would it take for Adam Gase to keep his job after the season? I, I they'd have to go like eleven and five. I, I mean, I just be, don't understand how you could keep rolling with this. It'd be impressive. Also, another question for you: uh, as the offensive line expert, can you explain the George Fant contract to me? No, I absolutely no. cannot. I, I absolutely cannot. The right tackle market in general on the just on the open market with free agents has just lost its mind. I mean, when you consider that Jawan James set, reset the market last year in free agency, I mm-hmm. do we have so few capable starters that that's the going rate for finding a guy you can just plug in and have a heartbeat? Because that's essentially what they're doing. 
I mean, he got the same max value that Brian Balaga got on his contract. I know. Brian Balaga is like I don't understand it. a real adult, successful NFL right tackle. So I, I didn't understand. I mean, this was a team that was definitely banged up up front. And you see the kind of the Bills-esque way of rebuilding. They added a, a ton of offensive linemen. You kind of have to see what shakes out during the season. But I, I think the concern for me when it comes to evaluating this team in 2020 is that if you were going to try to piece together a hopeful season, it was okay. We got a full season from Sam Darnold. We improved the offensive line. And then our defense was quietly pretty good last year. They were 10th in yeah. DVOA on defense. They were better than the Saints, the Eagles, the Broncos, the Packers. And that was with no Avery Williamson all year, with CJ Mosley playing one half of healthy football and getting a pick six in that one half. Leonard Williams gone after half the year. Tremaine Johnson playing a quarter of the snaps, then disappearing. And now because they traded away their best player, it's hard to project them being better on defense than they were a year ago. I, I have no idea how they would because the talent hasn't gotten that much better. I mean, it, it, Williamson is already a little nicked up. He's apparently working with the second team. Can you name a Jets cornerback without looking? Okay, okay. I can because I gave Brian Poole's grade one of like the three A's I handed out uh, in free agency this year because it was a really good, good deal. Good slot corner, Brian Poole. It That's was, where it ends. It, it was Brian, it's Brian Poole and then like a bunch of dudes who used to play for the Colts. That's exactly right. Quinn, Quincy Wilson, Pierre Desir, they signed Desir off the scrap heap. Totally fine. It's That's a smart signing. I don't mind some of the things they've done. I actually think the way they went about this offseason was relatively smart. Sure. I, I just think that they're full-scale evaluation mode. They Let's see what be. we have. Let's move forward. And I mean, you, you trade Adams. It is an admission that that's the point you've reached as a franchise. And again, that's okay but I'm just not sure they set themselves up to evaluate their quarterback in a complete effective way. Right. And, and I think that, do, do, do you think that's telling in itself? I mean, do you think that there's a, 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 a part of Joe Douglas who just thinks, Hey, this isn't my guy and I'm going to be good. If he struggles, like as long as I don't lose my job, I'll be okay. I think that you should not leave yourself thin in terms of resources to go collect pieces to evaluate him if you're not sold that he's the guy. I, th I think there's probably something to that. Would you rather they have just spent what it would have taken to bring in Jack Conklin and then try to no, build on the cheap? No, absolutely not. No? No, absolutely not. I, I am The Jack Conklin contract is not something that I support. Wow. An offensive lineman getting paid that you don't support. I'm not used to this. I mean, I just, I'm good for him. I, I'm sure he's really enjoying it. I, I hope he's a happy person. He seems perfectly pleasant. But I, I don't think that he's a special player and he was paid a lot of money. Well, we will see what happens with the Jets. Do you have anything else to say about the Jets, base? I do not have anything else to say about the Jets. I, I think that you know their defense was fine last year. I don't think they're going to be as good. There's not a lot of reason to think they will be. The corners are maybe better with Jermaine Johnson gone, but I, I still... It's a team that is just not that exciting to me and not that interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. They're, again, it's they just have to see what they have and then move forward from there. The Dolphins are not, are, they're no longer in that spot. We have reached a point with the Miami Dolphins where we are post-tank. They have used a ton of the draft capital that they acquired with all the trades that they made, whether it be Minka Fitzpatrick, Laramie Tunsil, all of the cap space that they had acquired, you know, kind of accrued over the last mm -hmm. couple of years, more than $100 million. A ton of that has been spent. So as you kind of survey this situation and the Dolphins have spent everything, they've gone in, do you think that this end result was worth the pain that was endured over the past couple of years? Mm, I mean, it wasn't that bad in 2018. I mean, it was really just the first half of 2019 that was embarrassing. Yeah, bad. that's fair. Um, yeah. 
it depends on Tua, right? Like if yeah, they have a franchise quarterback in Tua Tagovailoa, that solves a lot of your problems, man. Like it's like if you you can get a lot of stuff wrong, and and if you have the right quarterback and you get a couple of the pieces right, you're going to be okay. I think Ryan Grigson's tenure with the Colts are a good example where he got some draft picks wrong, got some draft picks right. That first draft was pretty good. Um, you know, some of the trades were questionable. Some of the trades worked out okay, but because he had Andrew Luck it papered over a lot of the problems and gave them a a really long runway to rebuild and try and build a contender. They didn't get where they wanted to, but um, if you get that quarterback right, you can have time to figure out a lot of the other stuff. Bill O'Brien in Houston is maybe a similar example. Of course, it's, I wouldn't endorse his roster building philosophy, but um, you know, I, I think that there's definitely still work to be done. This is not a finished product. I don't expect this team to be a contender this year, but looking at the bigger picture, I can appreciate a lot of what they've done. And I think a lot of what they've done makes sense. Not everything, but I think a lot of the stuff they've done, you know, is a, a logical team rebuild. I, I come down in a similar spot. Uh, there are, Most of this makes sense to me. And I think that them being able to not have to trade up, stick at number five, still get their quarterback, and not be embarrassing last year. The fact yeah. that they were playing hard, clearly they wanted to play for Brian Flores, all that stuff was good. I think that's one of the downsides of tanking is that you just beat down your players emotionally. I don't think that happened with them last year, and that's a hard needle to thread. So with that side of it, and then you think about the actual moves that they made. A lot of this makes total sense to me. I think that spending a lot of capital on the offensive line, what you have a starting left tackle now in Austin Jackson. We'll see how that works out. But then the Solomon Kinley kind of Robert Hunt bringing in some guys to see what works. Mm. You know, Taking a couple dice rolls in the draft, let's find a five. Totally support that. I think the Ted Karras signing makes total sense. On the defensive side, they are clearly going back to front with the defense. We've seen that work other places, and that's fine. You know, the Byron Jones contract is huge, but I can see where they're going with him, Xavier Howard, and Noah Igbenogany. Totally makes sense. The Shaq Lawson signing does not make sense to me. Because if we're trying to build a New England-esque team, I don't understand paying for a guy who's a 270-pound decent pass rusher when, for the most part, those pieces should be interchangeable. Okay. But other than that, it, I can support a lot of the moves they made. The Eric Flowers move also, no thank you. Okay, so a lot to talk about there. You want to start on offense or defense? Let's start on offense. Let's do okay, that. Offense. Okay, so every year, Maze, I grade every, not every, but a lot of the trades, a lot of the free I know you do. And I'm I'm critical. I'm I'm a hard grader. <laughs> and I will hear every year from a fan or several fans who say, You don't get it. We can't be any worse than we were at that position a year ago. And most of the time they're wrong. That is not yes. true. <laughs> the exception to that rule might be the twenty nineteen Miami Dolphins offensive line, where uh ESPN has a stat called pass block win rate, which is measuring how effectively an offensive lineman does it, neutralizing the guy he's trying to block for the first two and a half seconds of a pass play, because that's when the ball typically should get out. It's not a perfect step, but I think it's a big step in the right direction. Last year, the Dolphins offensive lineman, out of 171 players, the Dolphins ranked 110, 146, 149, 165, 169, 170, and 171. Gets the three worst linemen in the league by this stat. All happened to be Miami Dolphins offensive lineman. So I don't love the Eric Flowers signing. I am nervous about Jesse Davis, who I think was 170 out of 171. You know, Austin Jackson is a rookie. I 
Rookie left tackles are a dangerous game to play, as in fact the Eric Flowers scenario for the Giants comes to mind. They might not be that much better, but they can't be worse. And so I think I, you know, they're not a finished product, but I do think they took steps in the right direction on the offensive side of the football. My only concern is, you know, I, I'm i shocked they did not do more to invest at receiver. They re-signed Devontae Parker right before the end of the year. They're getting Preston Williams back from a torn ACL. That's fine. They re-signed to Keith Grant before last season. Um, and they have Mike Kosicki, who is, by the way, Mike Kosicki listed a tight end. He's playing for Chan Gailey. The idea that Mike Kosicki is a tight end is absurd. He is a big slot wide receiver. He is not a tight end in the NFL at this point. Um, but the idea that they did not do more to invest at receiver did seem surprising to me in a draft that was so wide receiver friendly in a free agent period where wideouts were not heavily valued. I kind of was hoping they would do more, at least add one piece uh, to give to a Tango Vailoa or give Ryan Fitzpatrick something a little more to work with in the receiving game. I think the Albert Wilson opt-out hurts them. You know what? You know what? You know what? You don't have to keep Albert Wilson. His contract was not guaranteed. You could have just cut Albert Wilson and called it a day and signed Robbie Anderson. That is not like they were stuck with Albert Wilson even before the opt-out. If we're trotting, if we're walking out here from the huddle with Devontae Parker, Preston Williams, Albert Wilson, and Mike Gesicki, I think that's okay. This is the Bears fan of you talking uh, in terms of, of low expectations for receiving court. Maybe, maybe it might. I'm just, yeah, my spirit is broken. And then that's just, yeah, okay. those are my standards. Let me now. ask you this. What are the chances that next offseason the Dolphins make a serious investment in a wide receiver or a tight end? I mean, I could definitely see it happening. I think it is very high. We will, we will uh, revisit this, hopefully, this time next year. I'm curious what the offense ultimately looks like, and I think that obviously that's a two of conversation. Well, it's you know, also kind of in a, sorry, it's also a Chan Gailey conversation. I think it's such a it's such a weird decision to hire Gailey. If you want to get rid of, of O'Shea, I think that's fine. You know, obviously the offense was a work in progress last year. It did get better as the year went along. The offensive line was a mess, but to hire Chan Gailey, who is someone who, for the uninitiated, runs a spread offense. I mean, ran the pistol in like 2010 with Tyler Thigpen, which is like a very weird NFL nerd thing to, to have as a, a memory, but a guy who's I had great, watching that in college and being very confused, right? A guy who had great success in the past with Ryan Fitzpatrick, like a very Fitz specific hire coming in as OC kind of surprised me. I, like, do you see Gailey as a long-term option for this offense? Oh, absolutely. Because I think that Tua fits him as well. You did. Uh, he did a lot of his best work at Alabama when they were spreading things out. I mean, I don't know how much Chan Gailey is going to adopt and embrace RPOs, considering he, <laughs> the NFL has mostly adopted them since he's been out of a job as an offensive coordinator. But I think spreading things out for Tua and just letting him play point guard definitely plays to his strengths. Okay, again, so have, if, you, have you heard about the offensive line the Dolphins have, though? Yeah, what is that's fine. Just get the ball out quick. It's, it's that simple, huh? I absolutely think it's that simple. If we're kidding ourselves thinking you need like a sixth offensive lineman or a tight end in order to protect in the NFL and it's not about how quick your trigger man is, I think we're lying to ourselves here. I think both things come into play. I think Bill Belichick's hearing, okay, just get the ball out quick. You'll be fine. I, I think he's probably enjoying hearing that from you if he's listening to the podcast. I think you can scheme up protection if you're going to spread things out. I absolutely think that's a possibility. You're not going to play like LSU did last year and have all of these five-man protections. But if no. you have six-man protections and you're 
really scheming to get the ball fast, and that's what you want your offense to be. I think that you can get around it. I also think the offensive line is going to be better. It, 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 again, it cannot it be has worse. To be. <laughs> it, it could improve and still be the worst offensive line in football, and that wouldn't shock me if that were the case. When you look at the defense, do, would you agree that the loss in contract is the one that confuses you the most of the deals that they signed? No, I don't. You think I, the Van Noy contract is worse? Yeah, I, I, I think. Okay. I think when Bill Belichick, it makes more sense to me though, why? because I think you just having that sort of versatile piece in that defense and wanting to do what the Patriots do. He does several different things, even though you're overpaying him by a ton and. A huge part of his value in New England is that they weren't paying him anything. I, I get that part of it. But I still think that I understand overpaying for that piece more than I understand overpaying for whatever Shaq Lawson gives you. Okay, so this is a guy in Calvin Noy who Bill Belichick signed, traded for off the scrap heap in Detroit. He was, I think, a second-round like pick. fifth-round pick, round pick was. It, it was I mean, some, he was a second-round pick. Right. But they traded him for like a fifth-round pick. Yes, I believe it might have been even less than that. It might have been like a six for Van Noy and a seven or something. Like He was unwanted. Bill Belichick turns this guy into a starting caliber Did you just linebacker. get that? Did you just pick that? That it was a seventh and a sixth? Is that correct? Because that That's correct. That's impressive. Well done, buddy. It's, it, it, I don't know if you know this, Maze. I, it's my job to know the stuff about I, Yeah. Um, I, I, know, I know it is. But, but like Bill Belichick builds this guy into a useful player, molds him to, you know, plays to his strengths, and then says, you know what? I'm good. Like, I can find the next Kyle Van Noy. And... The Dolphins and of course the Lions with Jamie. Collins His name is as well. Josh Uche. They yeah, already did it. Right, exactly. Like, like like the teams who had Bill Belichick, who, who used to be on Bill Belichick's staff, say, okay, let's pay that guy that Bill Belichick does not think is worth thirteen million dollars a year, thirteen million dollars a year to be that guy for us. That does not typically work out well. I. It's the Trey Flowers corollary. Right. I I I think Calvin Noy is a good football player, and I think he's going to be a useful linebacker. But I think you can find linebackers. Pretty easily. I think Shaq Lawson is a guy who, at his best, is a very solid run defender, a good run defender, and a guy who showed some pass rushing potential last year. His pass rushing numbers were pretty solid. And I think you saw with him and with Emmanuel Agba, I think what the Dolphins were saying is, hey, we're going to take a shot on some, you know, instead of getting going after one great pass rusher who's going to get $16, $17 million a year when that guy's probably not even going to be available, let's take a shot on two guys, give them half of that or close to half of that, and maybe we land on one guy who is a useful, you know, eight, nine sack a year guy. Maybe we get lucky and he's even more. I don't know if that's going to work, but I can understand why you would do that as opposed to, um, you know, paying for a guy Bill Belichick probably did not want to keep around at that price tag. The Agba contract is bigger than I thought it was. I, it's seven and a half million a year. Yeah. I thought it was less than that. Yeah, that, that, it makes sense. I mean, the Bills have done something similar with the way they've built their front four. I can understand that. But I, again, I understand the piece that's necessary for that defense and what Van Noy gives you, even if it's an overpay. I, I don't agree with the, the value of it, but in terms of the thought process of needing a player like that, I get it. The one last thing I want to ask you about this defense, are you at all worried about the Byron Jones transition from that zone-heavy defense in Dallas to what he's going to be asked to do here? Because they played 27% man in Dallas last season. The Dolphins played 46% man last year. It was the third highest rate in the league. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends. You know, I, I think he has the physicality to play more man. I mean, this is a big dude. Like he, you know, Igbenogany is a guy coming out of school who's going to be a, a press defender. He has the the frame and the, the you know, ability Mindset to pull it off. too. He plays that way. Right. And I think with Byron Jones... You know, he can play that way in terms of his 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 size and his strength. So I think it's more about just getting comfortable, 
you know, playing that way on a regular basis. Now, are there going to be missteps in year one? I, I think that's going to be the case. I think, you, you know, we could be sitting here a year from now saying, man, Byron Jones was a disappointment. I think he could be better in year two because he's going to have more comfort playing in that scheme. You know, I think with the Cowboys, one of the reasons they were playing that scheme was because their secondary wasn't very good and they didn't have another guy who could play man as well as Byron Jones could. I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic he can be, if not the guy he was in Dallas, still a very good cornerback as part of this trio. I think so, too. And if you take other guys who played that scheme, like, you know, Richard Sherman is fantastic at playing that deep third, using the sideline to his advantage. I think Jones is such a great athlete yeah. that the change of direction stuff doesn't worry me the same way it would with another team or with another corner that has come from a primarily zone scheme. So uh, I was curious what you thought. Yeah. One more question for you, Maze, about the Dolphins and about Tua Tango Bailoa. When do you think he is the starting quarterback of this football team? It's a huge question. I think that's an organizational decision. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they just kind of sat back and said, this year is not worth why it. Do, why do we do this every year to ourselves? But this is different, though. It's not. This is different. Yes, it is. His injury history makes it different. You don't think Stephen Ross is going to be sitting there in front of 18,000 people and being like, we got to put two in next week? Can I read you the Dolphins schedule? I, Mina Kimes, our, our, my colleague, friend of ours, pointed this out to me. The Dolphins schedule this year. At the Patriots week one. We're off to a bad start already. Hosting the Bills week two. Not looking good. At the Jags week three. Okay, we're in better shape there. Hosting the Seahawks. At the Niners. At the Broncos. Hosting the Chargers. Hosting the Rams. To me, would you want to put Tua Tango-Vailoa in the lineup for that Seahawks, Niners, Broncos, Chargers run? No. <laughs> no. So, would you want him in there for the Patriots and Bills games? No. No. From week nine on. Cardinals, Jets, Jets on either side of a bye. So Cardinals, Jets, bye, Jets, Bengals, Chiefs. That is the point where I think Tua Tagovailoa will be in the starting lineup. I think there is a very slim chance, based on history, that he's actually going to sit out all of 2020. I know, I know, but I still think that this is a slightly different consideration. And they're a team that has shown patience and a willingness to stick with a plan with the way that they did things last year. I wouldn't be surprised if Dude, they did the how same many, thing with the quarterback. How many weeks did they give Josh Rosen last year? Yeah, I know. You're probably right. You're probably Qu right. Quarterback, I just want to see him get hurt. I'm just concerned about it. I'm just looking out for the guy's well-being. That's it. I, I, I think they are a smart organization. I like a lot of what they've done this year. I think – that quarterback is a different animal, and I think that's when ownership gets involved, and I think that is the point where we'll see Tua uh, during 2020. I know. You're probably right. All right. We got to get out of here, but I have one question to ask you before we do. Uh -oh. Who wins the AFC East? Uh, I don't like my choice, but I did a podcast with uh, your colleague Shilkapadia last week. I listened. Week where I picked the New England Patriots to win the AFC. So I have to stick with that now. I'm not super psyched about it. I think the Bills are a better so team. Boring. Better team top to bottom. But I would rather pick the Patriots and be wrong than, uh, you know, pick the Bills and be wrong. So I'm going to go with the Patriots. I totally disagree. I'm picking the Bills, and I would much rather pick the Bills and be wrong. It's just way more fun. I am picking the Buffalo Bills to win the AFC. So I feel pretty good about it, honestly. You can save that as one of those other clips. Yeah, I was going to say, just, just mark it down. All right, buddy. Thank you so much for doing this. It's always so fun to do it with you. I appreciate you coming on in our first week. It means a lot to me. So thanks for the time. You know I have nothing better to do than talk about football with you. Whether it's on the air or off the air, it's going to happen one way or another. 
Go play with your very adorable dog who looks just like my dog. All right. Guys, thank you so much for listening to The Athletic Football Show. Please go subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It's super important early on. We would love if you did that. It would mean a lot to me. We will be back on Wednesday previewing the NFC East with the man that Barnwell just mentioned, Shio Kapadia. Until then, thank you guys so much. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.